right, welcome everybody to a Monday evening edition, or afternoon, I guess, if you're on the West Coast or in Hawaii or, or some fun place like that, uh, edition of Call and Shots. I'm Seth Partnow of The Athletic and Stats Bomb and uh, The Midrange Theory, the, the book uh, flying off shelves everywhere, I hope. Um, I'm joined today by a friend of mine who I've wanted to actually have on basically since I started the show, uh, Brett Cormenos. Um Skills trainer to the not yet stars is that uh, is that a a reasonable uh, first wave introduction? Actually, let me let you introduce yourself so I don't I don't uh, butcher it further. I, I would say trainer to the not yet stars in the leagues that you don't watch. Um, <laughs> that would that would probably be the most apt one. But no, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you pretty much hit it on the head. I mean, I was lucky enough to do skill development for professionals ranging from China to the NBA for about eight years and uh, you know high school coach before that so I was in team coaching I did independent player development never really um, wanted to kind of do the NBA grind uh, for numerous reasons Um, and then yeah a few years ago I got out just because that industry is brutal um, and now I'm just washed and now I'm just I'm a couch commentator so it's great. (laughs) I mean when you say it's brutal it's brutal both from a it's competitive. It, uh, it's a little bit of hype beasting going on, but also just from a, a physical standpoint. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Like, you know, now I'm in, you know, my mid thirties here and, um, I'm probably closer to the late thirties actually. And, uh, you know, getting, getting out there on the court with those guys every day, especially, you know, the younger guys that are just coming to college and, you know, we weren't just doing rebound the ball and point and do this. You know, we try to, I mean, I can't even remember, but probably there's a reason I can't remember how many elbows to the head I've taken being a post-up dummy or, you know, how many uh, pick and rolls I've ran as the screener as, you know, at 5'9". Um, and so it was, and it was long days on the court, you know, and then we did the strength and conditioning stuff as well. Um, I got certified as a strength coach. Um, I'm absolutely the person that you would least expect to train basketball players and be a certified strength and conditioning coach, but, uh, you know, somehow I did it. Um, so it was, you know, weight rooms in the morning for three, four hours, a couple of different groups, usually depending on how many guys we had in town or whether it was not the pre-draft process. And then afternoons it was on the court. And then sometimes, you know, it was going back to shoot at night, um, especially for guys once the pre-draft process started, you know, for guys that were going in town to workouts or kind of were in and out between NBA workouts and stuff like that, who just wanted to come in, get some shots up. Um, so it was, it was just a grind. It was that. And then that, that industry is very unforgiving when you're on your own. Um, you know, you're just kind of relying on marketing and networking and <laughs> my business partner and I were not really built to, to be the guys that were on Instagram, like showing every clip or every handshake of someone that we, you know, met outside the court. That was a big star to try to get people to train with us. We just kind of relied on doing a good job, word of mouth, you know, letting players tell other players, um, you know, so we weren't really built to do the whole marketing thing. Um, and that obviously made it harder to consistently churn up and, and make your revenue go upwards. Um, and, you know, again, just the physical grind of it was tough. And then it wasn't just what you're doing on the court. It was, a, you know, we had a two-man operation. So we'd finish the day, and then it was phone calls from agents, films, you know, players that were coming into town, getting workout plans together, meeting with our physical therapist who was associated with us. Um, I, did a, I spent a lot of time with him so we could integrate that stuff into the strength and conditioning um, so it was, it was never ending. It was just 24 seven for six months out of the year. There were some stretches where, you know, we'd be in the gym or the weight room for like 63, 64 straight days, you know, once April 1st rolled around and, uh, that's brutal. And there's not a lot of balance in your life when you're doing shit like that. So, um, it was tough and I'm, you know, but now I'm kind of glad that I can just also enjoy the relationships that I made, you know, just kind of be friends with the players and, and support them you know, not feel like I have to watch every game or after every game call and say, you know, on this pick and roll in the third quarter, or, you know, what were you looking at here? And I could just say, hey, man, you play well. <laughs> you know, you're doing great. I'm proud of you. Um, makes that kind of thing a lot easier. So there's like nine different ways that I can go off this. The first one's a quick one is the, the last thing you said, like talk to someone, out, a player after the game, like what did you, what did you read here? What were you doing there? Um, this is sort of a thing that has become – certainly at the NBA level, and I think increasingly at the college level as well, as well is the sort of, um, you know, there's, there's almost the, the camp. Like, the, the players got a guy, and then a team has a development staff, and the, the, the coach maybe wants something, and maybe the agent wants a different thing. And, and 
how does all that work or does it or not work in many cases? Yeah. A lot of it is we, we tried to be our best to be the bigger person in, in those relationships, you know, with the agents, we would be a little more confrontational in terms of like, Hey, like we think this is what this guy needs to do to make money for both of you. Um, with the coaching staff, it was definitely a lot of maybe we didn't agree with the things that they were working on them or the way that they were utilizing them. So we would just, you know, we just rolled with it, right? You know, we just kind of steered into the skid. If they were taking them in a direction that we didn't think was going to work or they weren't being utilized in a way that we thought was was best, um, when they came in for work, we would just try to communicate. If we had a line of communication with the coaching staff, people on the staff, we would talk to them about it and say, hey, you know, what are you looking for them this year? Um, you know, typically we would connect with somebody in the front office at some point if we had a player and just kind of say, hey, like, what do you want from him this year? What are you looking at for him? Um, you know, how do you envision his role changing or staying the same? And then we would just try to do right by them um, because that obviously is the player's employer, current employer. Um, you know, for free agents, we would normally sit down with those guys and, you know, maybe their agent and just kind of say, hey, like, here's what we're thinking for the summer. You know, if, if we were lucky enough to get them for more than a few weeks, you know, we'd say we kind of map it out. Like, we think that you can add this to your game. We think that we can get you better at this. Like, what do you think? What do you want to do? Um, so, it was, you know, a lot of it was just communicating, trying to be on the same page with everybody. And then there was times when it didn't work. We had a particular player that we <laughs> spent three months rebuilding the shot. Um, and then he went immediately to the next team and one of their assistant coaches who ended up being a head coach immediately taught him something that we just completely disagreed with. <laughs> and it was like, you know, you got to be fucking kidding me. Um, so it was tough. He came back then the next summer and he had all these new shooting cues and things like that. And, you know, that just happens. Like you just, that's, it's kind of the, sh- the shitty part of being an independent player development guy. It's like, you're the lowest on the food chain in terms of the eyes of everybody else that, imp- that is around this guy. Um, you know, cause we're not going to coach him as a team coach. We're not going to work with him as their individual, as the team player development guy. We're not going to sign him as the front office guy. Um, so you, you kind of just get stomped on, even if our vision maybe was correct. Um, you know, we usually lost on a lot of those fights. So like we said, like I said, we kind of steered into the skid mostly and try to work with everybody to see if we could just kind of make the process at least move in the same direction so the player wasn't getting it pulled in eight different ways with a bunch of different voices in his head. Sure. So in a situation like, uh, you say you're working with an, with a free agent, um, you know, I'm specifically thinking of a guy who's sort of on that borderline between being like an NBA ninth man or kind of a, you know, a top guy on maybe a, a second tier or a rotation guy on a first tier like European team. Um, does what you want to work with the guy, does it change based on which of those routes he thinks he's going to go down? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um you know, I, th- I think a guy that's a perfect example of that is we work with Matt Thomas, and Matt's with Chicago now. And Matt was a really, really good European player. He went over from Iowa State, and he played in Spain right away. Um, he played for a smaller club over there called Monbus, moved up to Valencia, and then came back to the league. And when he was with those two teams, like when, especially at Monbus near the end, like the coach was putting the ball in Matt's hands. That was probably the first time since high school that Matt, you know, basically was like getting pick and rolls called for him that weren't just like second side stuff that came or like when he ran off the screen and didn't have a flare and then the big came back to him kind of stuff. Um, so we, you know, we definitely worked on that. We worked on like little ISO segments for him in case he had short clock situations. Um, you know, but then when he got to the NBA, it was strictly like off screen. You know, we this is how they're going to use you. Everybody looks at you like J.J. Redick. You know, we'll do some pick and roll stuff to just make sure, like, you feel confident if you get put in those situations. But, you know, we're going to be honest. You're going to be attacking closeouts. You're going to be coming off screens. Those are going to be the only things that you do. And so, you know, you definitely have to be on your toes, you know, because obviously, like, player contract situations are very fluid. I mean, you know this. Very fluid. You know, you never know where a guy's going to ultimately end up. So we definitely just kind of had to be very fluid our plans could change. Um, and then we, you know, a lot of it would depend on the player too. Like somebody like Matt was great because Matt has a great perspective on where he sits on the NBA food chain. You know, he doesn't think that he's Steve Nash. He knows that he's trying to be, uh, you know, JJ Redick light kind of guy. Um, and so it's very easy to have those conversations then about like, Hey, I think we should work on this. And then he's with it and he understands it. 
But, you know, sometimes you get those guys, and, I mean, you know them, the guys that are very talented could easily play in the NBA. Um, like Jeremy Pargo is a perfect example of this. Yeah, Pargo was extremely talented basketball player from Gonzaga. I don't know how, where, where your audience is at with age demographics, but, you know, Pargo was, is really talented. He was, like, one of the more talented, explosive athletes, but he was an alpha. You know, he was not going to take a bench roll. He was not going to try to have the ball in his hands and be fine, you know, starting to play and then sitting in the corner and attacking closeouts. So, you know, Jeremy ended up playing a lot more overseas, playing for like the big Euro league clubs. Um, I think Russia was in there for a while. Um, and so with that, with a guy like that, you know, we kind of cater to him, right? Cause we're there, they're, we're technically there. Um, you know, <clears throat> they're the customer and the customer's always right. So if Pargo wants to run a bunch of pick and roll stuff, and not work on things off the ball, or maybe he might be in a situation where if he's playing with like LeBron or something, um, you know, he's clearly not going to be touching the ball. Then, you know, we kind of cater to that. We cater to the personality of the player. You know, we try to have those conversations with him. Like, Hey, I think if you, if you take things this way, um, you know, maybe it would be better for you, but you know, ultimately you have to factor in that, you know, guys are going to be who they are. It's, you know, we're, we're just player development guys. We're not, most of the time, we're not in their inner circle. We're not the most important, vo- most important voice in their ear. So you kind of just got to roll with what they are and what they envision themselves to be. So that both those examples sort of lead to a something that's come up a lot, and it, it first came up. Uh, I mean, it was it was posed to me. I went on on early in the season. I went on uh, Eddie Johnson's radio show to have a, a debate about analytics. And that's actually a, a very cordial and, 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 and respectful conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. And, and one of the, the points he brought up, which I thought was an excellent point, is, all right, you never want your, your, no, your, your fourth best player or whatever operating in the mid-range. Uh, if he's a young player, are, are you stunting his growth by not letting him do that? And, you know, he, he obviously is around the Suns most, and, you know, the player is Mikhail Bridges. Like, do you want Mikhail Bridges taking 10 mid-range pull-ups a game right now? No. Do you want to see if Mikhail Bridges can become a guy who can who can operate in that area? And has he done that a little bit and improved this year? Yes. So how do you balance that? So uh, how how do you balance that? Kind of the the this is I mean this is a question that comes up when when talk to college coaches too is like you know winning tomorrow, winning next week, uh, winning two years from now. How do you how like it, it, even if if you had a if you had uh, a situation where a player had to listen to you, like uh, all that aside of like the player thinks he's the, you know thinks he's going to be a primary ball handler, but maybe not. Like even taking that aside, like how do you balance that? Yeah, um, two things come to mind, and I mean, actually, I'd be curious to kind of even get your thought on this. I'm going to interview you here in a second, um, <laughs> but um, we have we call I called it the Danny Green model, right? So when Danny first came into the league, like he literally was a spot shooter. Like that's all Danny could do. He he worked hard. He you know he bounced around. I think a little bit like to for a couple teams. His first couple of years and landed obviously in San Antonio, and he was strictly a spot shooter. Then the next year Danny came back and he had some shit when he got chased off the line. He could get to more stuff. He could get to little touch shots. You know pull ups, slide to the side threes, things like that. And then the next year. He got, he had the basic pick and roll package to come off, you know, take a couple of dribbles, get downhill, drive the big back, you know, shoot a little mid range, pull up jumper, you know, shoot behind if they went under that kind of stuff. And then like his fourth year, you really started to notice that he was making like left-handed hook passes when he read the tag coming in. And I always thought that we built our model and that with that type of vision in mind with the guys that we work with, because, you know, we, we work with some talented players, but most of them. You know, the most of the really talented guys we didn't see long enough to really make an impact. We're just basically their rebounding form as they stayed in shape. Um, but that was kind of our model for a lot of the guys. It was like, we'll get you really good at X thing. And then once you show that, like, you're going to get more leeway, we'll build the next skill, right? There was To me, there was always, like, a really simple progression moving forward in a player's career. And my, my question to you would be, I guess, when I look at that that way, very rarely do you see a player need to come into a season and then completely change his skill set, right? Like, I, I can't think of too many examples where a guy kind of came in slated for a role as a seventh or eighth man and then really needed to, like, be a, bi- a guy that could just create his own shot and be in a bunch of pick and rolls and things like that. 
I mean, is there is that are there too many examples where you can really think of when a player immediately needed, you know, like Mikel Bridges immediately needed self-creation in the mid-range? I really can't think of too many, at least as far as like higher profile guys. The one the, the example that, that comes to my mind for this, and this is going to go back a ways, is when early in Trevor Ariza's career, like he was a he he you know he came in with the Knicks and then kind of bounced to the Lakers, and was an important piece of some championship teams that are Lakers. Now, I, I, coming off of one of those, he like signed a big free agent deal with I believe New Orleans when they were the Hornets, like, like the and, and before they be, became the before they became the Pelicans again. So they, they, and, and he, he came in and they asked him to, instead of to be a three and D guy, they asked him to be like a primary on ball guy. And he like, he was not good at it. Like he, it was, it stretched him well beyond his, his skill set. Um, and now I like, I guess he came into the season kind of knowing that, but that was sort of the big role change we saw. And, you know, Jeremy Grant is another guy who more recently, who I think, made that transition more successfully, though I think he was a better, kind of more impactful kind of top-end player as a, you know, a fourth or fifth guy on Denver than he's been on it as a first or second guy in Detroit. Um, but those are a couple examples that I can think of. And, and that's a tough one because um, you, you just, you kind of don't know if the guy has that. Um, Right, and, and that and that's why we always tried to play it safe with our kind of vision for it, right? Like we just we we always wanted to give them, and, and I, you know you hear a lot of executive talks about this too, where give them a definable skill, give them something. If we have two weeks with a guy, a month with a guy, if he's going to leave and we can make an impact in one area, like you know what's the the most impactful thing that we can get him doing. Um, and that's kind of the way that we approached it and why we kind of classified it as like progressions of like, you know, if this guy, if this guy can't shoot, we are going to do so much spot shooting, dynamic shooting. Like we're going to get this guy where he can at least knock down enough shots that he's going to have to have a little bit of gravity when he's on the court. Right. Um, you know, and if he was already at that point, you know, then it was, we just would do a ton of closeout stuff. Like we tried to get him to anything that he could get to given his combination of speed, size, athleticism, you know, whether it was little flip shots, whether it was actually aggressively attacking the rim, you know, using his body to kind of bump off and get to little jumpers, things like that. Um, so we tailor it to each specific guy, but it was always in mind of like, if we're going to get, if you're going to leave after a couple of weeks, are you leaving here with something that's improved, you know? Um, and that's why I always thought our little Danny Green model was kind of the best thing that we could come up with is we just kind of see where they're at in the food chain and the progression and then just kind of work it up from there. Um, because we never really had a situation where there was a Trevor Ariza. We never really had a guy that was that came to us that we were going to have for a huge amount of time that was going to get this super abrupt role change. Um, and most of the time, if a team is asking the, our eighth man that we're working with to, like, all of a sudden step up and be a primary shot creator, like, they're pretty fucked at that point anyway. <laughs> <laughs> something, something has gone wrong. If you, yes. If, yeah. So it's, it, we're not getting phone calls from the agent being, this guy's not ready. What is your problem? Um, you know, we can mostly say, well, yeah, they're, they're screwed. Like they suck and they shouldn't be asking to do that. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's kind of a tricky thing, you know, and that's the, the big thing about player development is the more I did it, the more I realized that, you know, we were very limited in scope in a lot of ways. And then B, it was always dynamic. You just, you couldn't ever really say that this is the formula to do X, Y, Z. You always kind of had to be evolving and reshaping the programming and reshaping the vision for the player. Because, I mean, being a player in basketball, you're on different teams, you're in different countries. It was, you know, pretty wild um, given that, you know, like I said, this, the breadth of guys that we had and where they'd end up and what levels they were playing at. So that, I think, naturally leads into, and this is a question I've been asking, like, you know, anyone who kind of touches development. Um, I've asked people, I, like I had Ben Lind Lindbergh on and asked him about this in baseball. Had David Thorpe on last week, asked him about the this with basketball, how do players get better? And I don't, and I mean both like from a, you know, what do they do, but also what is it that means that they are better? So it's sort of on both ends of, of that question and, you know, take whichever, whichever side of that first you want. But this is like, this has always been something from my perspective on sort of more of the metric side is we sort of, all right, slap an aging curve on them. And that's about what's going to happen. But we just did the mechanism of that has always been completely opaque to me. 
Yeah, uh, I'm, you know what? I mean, my answer is I really don't know. Um, <laughs> that is, it was always so hard. And and one of, and this is maybe going to sound like bitterness. I hate to be that guy that comes on and is like, you know, fuck all these other guys. But, you know, there's a lot of guys that you'd see that would take credit for stuff. You know, a free throw percentage going up a little bit. A three-point shooting percentage going up for a little bit, you know, when, whenever they could capitalize on it, right? And it's kind of like, dude, you have no idea if you really had a hand in that, you know? Like, that could just be a small blip of variance where he just started making shots. That could be something that they're doing with the scheme and the system and type of the shots that he's getting. Um, you know, it's just we we always kind of felt like it was very, like you said, opaque is a perfect word for it. We don't know where our impact actually got somebody better, you know? Um, because there's so many moving parts, right? Like you could work on, even if it's something as simple as like spot three-point shooting, you could work on that a ton. And then a guy goes into, you know, kind of a team setting. And, and one particular example I can think about this was when we rebuilt um, Ish Smith's shot. And this was a long time ago. It's probably like the first couple of years that I was doing this. And we worked with Ish, and, and I think he was transitioning. You know, he's been on so many teams, I can't even remember. But he was going to Houston. And Houston was, you know, right. okay, okay, okay with him shooting threes, but Ish had never really had a green light. He had, I think he had just come from, this, from getting his first roll of major minutes with the Suns, and he had shot like 4% from three on like 50-something attempts. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was, you know, we really had nowhere to go with up. But you could tell that there was, even though he felt more confident in shot, even though we thought we streamlined his mechanics and he was in a good place at that point, there was game shots that he just wasn't going to get the minutes to really get. Like he wasn't going to overnight flip the switch and just be okay being a high volume three point shooter. Right. And we didn't know what kind of reinforcement he was really getting on the coaching staff. Was he, did he have somebody saying, Hey, ish, literally every time you're open, I don't care if you miss the first 20, like keep shooting. Right. So we don't know. We didn't really know what was going on there. Sometimes, you know, he would kind of tell us bits and pieces of, you know, the type of feedback. But most of the time when you're checking in on a guy, you're not just going to bombard him with like, what is, what is every single coach on staff telling you? What is the front office guys? What are they telling you? Um, so, you, you know, and, and sometimes those guys, they listen to somebody and <laughs> somebody is telling them that and then they just forget about it completely. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just really hard to tell where your impact was. And that was the thing that I kind of figured out because, you know, skill acquisition is really tough. And the more that I read into the science of it with like perception, action, coupling and, you know, repetition without repetition and differential learning and all those things that kind of go into it, you realize how hard it is to really get a guy to like make clear progress on a skill and how much time it takes. And that was the thing that like, as I did this more, there were certain things that I kind of looked at and I, I thought we were doing a really great job of. And now that I look at it armed with a little more knowledge and a little more experience, I was like, man, I don't even know if that really mattered. Like I remember in particular, you know, probably the first year I did it, we thought we were super clever. We came up with this passing tree. It was kind of modeled after like, I think Peyton Manning's at the Coats and he used to go out with Marvin Harrison and they'd go through all their routes and he, you know, he hit like an in route and a slant and an out and a fade and, you know, they go through it and we, we like, oh, that's like great. That's really smart. So like one of the first things that we did was we did this passing tree for guards where it was like, you know, pocket passes, hook passes behind the back to the pop, you know, skip to the far corner. And we kind of have them throw them with both hands. And we're like, yeah, you know, this is getting them warmed up. Like they're, they're learning this skill. A lot of guys don't throw passes with their off hands. A lot of guys don't think of that read, you know, so forth and so on. And then when I learned more about skill acquisition, and when I, you know, even when you watch the film, like how many behind the back passes to a pop man do you really see? And how many are, you know, dictated completely by the coverage? And you realize that in skill acquisition science that, you know, when I say perception, perception, action, coupling, it's that a player has to see something and then find a solution to that problem, right? He sees the hedge, he sees the space, he, then he has to, his body, he has to tell his body, I need to throw this pass with this much speed and this and this type of angle and so forth and so on. And we, you know, weren't doing anything dynamic with that passing tree at all. And they weren't making decisions. We were just giving them kind of the physical repetition of the skill. And so when you think about like a, kind of taking a player who maybe isn't a great passer, you know, or doesn't pass with both hands or whatever it is, and then taking enough time and enough game situations and enough dynamic learning situations for him to be a guy that like can all of a sudden throw like a left-hand pocket pass 
that's a month of both training the past, training the situation, creating the, the conditions, then having it reinforced in a game situation when he's like playing three on three small sided stuff like with the team and then his coach being okay to put him in those situations to let him throw that pass and having the personnel that it, those passes are available to him. Um, so that like, if you think of the confluence of all those things that have to happen for a player to get that skill down, especially if he's not a star who in the NBA is going to have the ball in his hands a lot, it's really hard. Like a lot of things have to go right for a guy to clearly become better at something that you're trying to get him better at. So it was really hard to parse like where we made the impact and how we could view what we were doing. It's just, it's definitely kind of an art thing because there's just so many factors that I don't think the human brain can really figure out where your influence was. And I'm sure we, we, we did get guys better in certain ways. And maybe we took more credit in some situations and less in others. Um, it's just hard because there's just no way to really tell. I think that answered about four of my questions at once. So, so thank you. <laughs> oh, no. So, I mean, it, it's so basically like, you know, the, the, like the, the, like the muscle memory is, is, is the tip of the iceberg, almost like from a purport, even from like just a proportion of what that skill is. Like you could, you're saying you could have a guy, all right, I'm going to come off a mid pick and roll to the right, take a dribble and throw like a, a, you know, hit a guy in the shooting pocket with a behind the back bounce pass. You can train that 50 times a day for a month, but if you don't do it in any sort of live scenario, the guy will never know to get to that. Is that right? And he, and he has to understand when to use that tool, yeah. right? So there's like, there's like, if you think of it as uh, you're building a house, right? There's the actual thing of like hitting the nail with the hammer, right? But then it's like learning where, where and when to place the board, how hard to hit the nail, you know, all that kind of shit, right? I know it's probably a crappy analogy, but that's kind of what it is, right? Like you first got to be able to take a hammer and put it on the head of a nail. That's like the lowest form. That's like getting him to be able to throw a behind the back pass that ends up to a stationary target with no defense, right? And then it's you add a little bit of more dynamism to it um, where you maybe add like a defender and the, the, the pick and pop guy is moving. So then he's got to gauge velocity and speed and all that kind of stuff. And then it's like mixing up the coverage. So when he knows when to use that pass versus when he can turn the corner and get his own shot, it's that then it's the perception action company. It's the decision-making component of, is this the play to make? Is this the time for me to use that skill? Or is it the time for me to do another thing? And that's like really where the crux of uh, when we got towards the end of it, we were really pushing towards, you know, I, I think of like kind of the most impactful workouts that we were getting to near the time when I was ending is we were doing really dynamic stuff. We, were, we would play pick and roll games and we would constantly change the coverage on the guy. And then we, you know, have the role, the guy roll, the player who is with or a little helper or whoever it was, you know, change up whether he was rolling or popping. So it was constantly making him make decisions on when to utilize the skills that we had just worked on. And when I think about all the time we wasted and just being like, yeah, we're just going to play a drop coverage and you just got to hit the roll guy. <laughs> like, you know, like that, that to me, it was, we were giving him a little bit of constraint, but like we weren't really making it like super dynamic problem solving. Um, and that's something that when you think about, it takes a really long time for certain players to grasp. Like when I come off this pick and roll and I'm getting a hard hedge and I'm with this guy as my personnel and the, the help defense is responding this way. I mean, think of how many times a quarterback has to read a coverage, you know, from high school to the pros before he gets really good at anticipating how to move a safety with his eyes and things like that. You know, there were some players like we were really fortunate to kind of, you know, kind of a re weird fluke have a little, a few weeks on and off with, with Devin Booker and book was fucking phenomenal at picking stuff up. You know, he, we would give him something and he'd be able to do it. And other guys, they would need a thousand reps <laughs> before they could really figure out and grasp what was happening and the dynamic part of the situation and what they needed to read and what they needed to look at and where their eyes needed to be and all that kind of stuff. It took them a long time to solve those problems and come up with a solution. And then on top of that, you, you also have to factor in habit breaking, right? So if you have a guy that's been a bucket getter his whole life, and he's not going to be good enough to do that at the NBA level. And he needs to start making passes, whether it's because of a athleticism thing or a role thing or whatever it is. And a guy that I think of a lot was my guy, Eric Green. You know, Eric in high school and at college at Virginia Tech 
<laughs> I mean, that dude, he wanted to just score. That, that was his mentality. Is he was getting buckets. He wanted to ISO. He wanted to score. If he was coming off a of pick and roll, he was getting his own shot. And with E, we, we spent a ton of time trying to work on balancing out his game. And we really had to hammer it. And we had to find very creative ways to get him to do that. And we actually had him making some passes. I remember one time we went to, we were watching him in summer league. He was with the Nuggets. And he I made remember this, that Nuggets team. Yeah, with Jokic and... Uh, well, no, like Moutier was the headliner on that team. Yes. Who, yes. Who's this... Who's this uh, Wow, that 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 that, uh, that that big center. I don't know if he's athletic enough, but he sure has some skill. Right, like, <laughs> right. Ooh, who knew? Um, I know it's crazy to think about that. I, I remember just. I remember now that I'm thinking about that situation. It's like I wasn't even paying attention to the guy. It's not one of the best players in the league. I was just worried about what Eric was doing. Um, but yeah, but I remember Eric. You know, he, he came off and he got an over coverage and he held the guy on his back and he let. I think it might have been Jokic roll and he whipped this hook pass over. And he knew right where we were in the crowd because we had, you know, said what's up to him kind of before the game. And he actually pointed at us after we ran back and made the pass. And But the thing is, is like Eric never had that skill reinforced. Unfortunately, he didn't stay with Denver. Then he went to Reno, and then Reno let him go. They were coached by that um, D3 guy. Who, oh, uh, Arsenal? Dad was, yeah, that's him. Who, and, you know, and they ran that super crazy offense, and Eric isoed a ton, and then he went back into his worst habits. So, like, we were making progress, and the – the way that we were developing him and the way that we were getting Eric to make the decisions that we thought were best for his career, you know, wasn't reinforced. And then that's how quickly it can go back the other direction. You can kind of lose all your work. So again, it's just, it's so hard to like get a guy better and build the constructs that allow him to continually develop. Like you really need everybody on the same page. He needs to leave you to go to the team and they need to do the same thing. And, you know, even with the NBA, you know, they have some really great player development coaches there. But, you know, I talked to a lot of guys, you know, that are bench guys and stuff like that that we had. And, you know, they would say when they when they were out of the rotation, if they were in and out, you know, all they do is basically play three on three. Right. Like they're just looking to basically stay fresh. They'd work out with a coach for 20 minutes here and there and, you know, do basic stationary shooting or pick and roll stuff with nobody else on the floor. And, you know, that's where I think NBA teams maybe are lacking is, you know, they're getting the sense that player development is a big deal. But I don't know if they're building the right player development plans out where they can really maximize the control they have over players in the season. You know, specifically, I think of someone like Matt in Chicago. You know, his value is always going to be in the offensive side of the ball. So where is Chicago, you know, is Chicago giving him an opportunity to maybe develop like pick and roll skills, you know, where he can really be a great passer to those situations by saying, hey, Matt, when you don't play, you know, we're going to bring our video guys in or we're going to have a you know, bunch of extra groups in and we're going, to, we're going to play a simulated game where you're the point guard and you're handling everything and you got to just work on your passing reads. You know, that kind of stuff, and you've been around the Bucks, like that kind of stuff is A, hard to do, and B, it just doesn't happen, even if they have the resources to do it. Um, and that's where I think you would start actually seeing real player development take place is creating the vision for those types of players that are the end of the bench guys and then really, like, focusing on getting them better but i think too often than not a lot of those end of the bench guys are just kind of replaceable proven commodities right like they're just they don't move they're fixed at some certain level this guy has this skill and it gives them this value on the market and you know he's undervalued in the market so we'll bring him in or he's overvalued on the market so we're going to release him or whatever it is um instead of just being like hey how can we create the structure to maximize this player and i just don't see that happening a lot even at the NBA level, which is the highest and smartest level of basketball. I mean, I think that's, that is a, it was one of those questions that comes up, like what would the NBA look like if they just played twice a week? And oh yeah, I think, absolutely. I think, and I think that, like, because like you, like you say that like part of the reason like stuff like this doesn't happen is getting, you know, all right, say you want to put two or three players into like these kind of situations, getting the, 10, 12 other people that would need to be involved in that workout together when they have time and like the mental energy to not just physical energy, but the mental energy to do it right. Like that's a, that's a tough wrangle in, <laughs> in season. And maybe like, and, and maybe that's part of it is, is there like the, the level of investment in player development because sort of player development is often like sort of a, an extension of the coaching staff and you know those the like the coaching staff itself doesn't have that doesn't have time to do that, 
Like, oh, absolutely, like, absolutely. I got yeah. I, you know, even even like the, the like you know, a player development slash film guy. All right, I got I, I got a scout that I got to do for this team next week, and I got to do my cut ups for the guys I work with, and I this and that. And then it's just like, yeah, you might have like a gap, like after lunch to do that, but you don't have the the mental wherewithal to like come up with those like create that that you know desirable difficulty. I guess is the from an education context like what you're mm-hmm. describing, like the the difference between, I mean, not like not to not to go not to get like nerdy education theory on people, but why not? Like the difference between. Um, there's really interesting studies on this. The difference between, you know, guys can improve more over the course of like a, a class or a session if you do a bunch of rote stuff, but if you make it harder for them, not too hard, just you know, at a level it's called desirable difficulty, right? That yeah, you know, they can they can sort of get it, but it's a challenge, and they won't get better. They won't in the session get better as fast but they will retain the improvements they made much better over time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was always something that was in our mind too, with, you know, how we were making the workouts. If a guy obviously was looking sharp and acquiring a skill, like we were doing something wrong because we needed to get him to the point where it needed to be challenging enough that, like you said, it had to be something that he kept and wanted to do. It wasn't something that he just did. And then he would be able to mentally just be like, yes, I'm already good at this. Like, I don't need to work on this anymore. I don't need to think about this skill. I don't need to improve this skill. So it was more to like the, the way players kind of respond to certain things that you do with them. Um, Cause usually, you know, if a guy feels like he's pretty good at something, he doesn't want to like continue to work on it. He wants to, a lot of guys are smart. They want to work on their weaknesses. You don't get too many guys that are just like, I'm really good at shooting threes. All I want to do in my workout is shoot threes. You know, they all want to get better. Like, they're, they're, at, they're high-level athletes mostly for a reason. They're competitive. You know, they, they mostly have a pretty good view of their own games, and they want to work on the things that they, they feel like they've been told they need to get better at or they know they need to get better at. And so we always wanted to make them feel like they were challenged to the point where there was nothing that they, that we, they couldn't continue to work on. Um, and part of that gives that stickiness to it, like you're talking about that retention the next time that you get them in a game situation, it's stuck and held a little bit better. And to kind of go backwards too, and, and this is where I want to go back to flipping the interview tables on you a little bit. Oh, please. This, this year has been really interesting to me is because we're seeing a lot of teams <laughs> and I have been obsessed with the 2011 Mavericks kind of maxing out around Dirk and, you know, how it wasn't a, uh, there wasn't a trio of stars. There was a lot of, really great complimentary pieces that fit really well in a lot of different ways. You know, the classic, who was the 2011 Mavs second best player kind of thing. Tyson Chandler. Oh, sorry. Well, that, wasn't, yes, that, was a, yes. that was a, that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> that is, that is the right yeah. answer, but uh-huh. there was enough of a debate, you know, with Jason Terry scoring punch and kids kind of savvy playmaking and, and controlling the team. You know, there was a lot of things that fit together really well. There wasn't there. Tyson Chandler was clearly at the peak of his defensive powers, you know, a vertically spaced the floor for him you know, with his lob ability, lob threat, stuff like that. But when you look at the teams this year, right, we're seeing a lot more one-star player with a, a, a deep, you know, one-to-nine roster around him, right? And one of the more high-profile teams that's failing, the Lakers, <laughs> clearly, I mean, there's age-related things in this. They didn't concern about fit. They didn't concern about the depth of rotation. And so one of the things that always frustrated me as a player development guy is you – we're seeing the value of having no weak points in a, in a rotation more. I think more and more as the NBA goes on, we're starting to recognize where there's weak points in rotations and minutes that go to guys that hurt a team. And we're starting to see that teams are getting better about trying to fill out rosters. At least like when we look at the good teams, most of these teams can go one to eight without us seeing a huge drop off, right? Give or take Philly's backup center situation. Yes, but, yeah. right. <laughs> um, well, I don't even. I mean, I, I mean, we could get into this debate too of yeah. where Philly's going to wind up in the playoffs and everything. But my so my question to you is: is like when you when we talk about it in context of what, where the league is, where, where the good teams are right now, with Memphis kind of being built around John and having a lot of solid players backing him up, no real second star, even. Phoenix, it's kind of Book's team with, you know, Chris in the late stage, Chris Paul in his career, you know, playing as like a sidekick, you know, no longer peak of his powers, Chris Paul. You I know, would, eight. I would, I would dispute that, but. Okay. 
No, I like honestly, like I like you know before he before he hurt himself, I thought I had I had Chris Paul high high up my hypothetical MVP ballot, um, just because like you got you know JaVale McGee, Bismack Biombo, Jalen Smith, all being like productive, like NBA players. Like uh, Chris Paul has a lot to do with that. Oh, I agree. I yeah. agree. Uh, and again, I, I I could I'm sure you could quibble with some of this. I'm just yeah. more. I'm trying to get at least a little bit broad yeah. to kind of go into the fact that like or, part or of the reason example. the Suns are the best team in the league yeah. is you. There's no real holes in their rotation, whether it's no. Chris Paul's doing it or not. But like you, there's not a player yeah. that you watch them roll out on a healthy night where that you just those minutes just kill you every night, right? The, the, the three teams that we really that I think we can really like talk about in that way are you mentioned Memphis, you mentioned Phoenix, and then especially after the trade deadline when not only adding Derek White, but, like, excising a few players from their rotation is Boston. Right. That was the like, team that I was going to bring up immediately, yeah. too, is Boston. Well, as, you know, anyone who's... who's well, Robert Williams about, playing yeah. more minutes also helps. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Um, he, uh, by the way, a player who, uh, uh, since his, his college days, I thought is someone who could, who could take on more than he was being asked to do because he, he had a lot of these... Like I still like I remember this when we were watching film on him. There was a play he made where he like switched out onto a pick and roll, retreated, blocked a shot off the glass, caught it with one hand, and while he was in the air with one hand, like flipped a perfect outlet pass to a guard. And it was just like, okay, that's a lot of different things. And the most impressive part of that to me was the fact that after doing all these amazing physical things, he still had the the, the wherewithal to be like. I'm going to start the fast break now too. And, and just like the skill level and the, 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 the recognition to do that. And I think we're, we, we see that more now and that like part of the reason he can play more minutes than maybe people thought is, okay, he's never going to be a shooter. He's never going to be like an off the dribble guy, but he has, but he can, he, he's a guy you can throw the ball to and good things can happen because he'll make the right play with it. Yeah, and I, I think to a degree, too. I mean, Grant Williams obviously improved his shooting um, as a big part of adding to his value, but he's another guy that's kind of built like that on that team. And you have a lot – and Marcus Smart, I've always been a huge fan. I mean, that, that guy's got the most dog in him probably in the league. You know, and he makes the switching defense work in terms of the fact that he can guard up slots um, and things like that. But I, I guess the, the way I was trying to do this conversation was is you see the value of having these guys or, like, the value of, like, Grant Williams – becoming a viable rotation piece and what that's done to the Celtics' chances of success going forward, especially at least in the regular season. Um, but I, that, I to mean, me, has always been the frustrating thing with player development. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, saying? it's like you say in the regular season. I mean, I've been, I, you know, I've been circling around saying I think the, the, I think the Celtics are coming out of the East for about a month, and I'm, I'm still not quite ready to just, like, you know, Stick stick my flag in the ground on that, but man. Well, you had kind of teased. I, you had kind of teased in your tweet about me coming yeah. on that we were going to talk NBA playoffs. Yeah, I would. I was going to stick my flag right there if you were going to ask me who was coming out. Okay, East. well, so yeah, okay, so <laughs> so this is bad radio. We agree on this. Um, yeah, no, but but no, but it's, it's an interesting point you're, you're making. Is that you know it's been for a long time. Um, you know, there's certain there there's kind of sports that are. I guess it's called you know. Some people call it strong link sports and weak link sports. And like another sport that you, that you're, you know, if, if there's another sport that I think you're, you're somewhat expert on is soccer. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and soccer has basically long been considered like more of a weak link sport in that, you know, all right, Messi can, if, if, if you've got like a, like a prime Messi or something like that, the other guys might not matter. But for the most part, like the, the how far a team goes is determined a lot more by who the weakest spot on the field is whereas in the nba for so long it's been much more of a strong link sport in that like okay you have lebron you don't need anything else yeah yeah and i think you know part of it is i think that you know certainly from when he you know it was i don't think it would be possible for a team like the 2007 Cavs to make the finals in in today's nba i think the league is sort of more competitive than that now but you can still like you know that that one star thing can go decently far. I mean, he's not quite the same player. I mean, he's obviously not that level of player. But I think like the level of success that Portland has had with Dame is sort of 
almost illustrating the the one dude and not much else um, kind of ceiling in 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 today's in today's game. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely a lot harder um, to build around one guy because you know you do have to hit the exact right skill sets and you have to have the full depth behind them. Um, but I guess my kind of thought behind this was is. And a big part to me, I think that when you say like a team like that, and when you're talking about the 07 Cavs, like not being able to win in today's NBA, a lot of it is, I think, tactically, things are completely changed from that era as well. And it's, there's so much more, I mean, it's not where we, we all hope it would be in terms of optimal decision-making and integrating analytics into decision-making and all that kind of stuff, but it's better. It's certainly better than it was in 2007. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so I think weak points and understanding lineups and rotations and minutes and, you know, you and I have talked off this app plenty about, you know, optimizing rotations and rotation scripting and things like that. You know, I've had, had plenty of conversations about how important that stuff is and making sure you're playing the right guys at the right times and doing the right things with those guys on the floor. Um, and, and that's that, why it's the right combinations oh, more than anything else. Right, right. right yeah. Uh, with, with like where you're talking about, like um, basically maximizing skill sets, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, it, and it's it's you know there's there's probably there's a lot of study that needs to go into like there's certain skill sets that you like that might be conflicting or duplicative, but you need some of them. Like you need a certain amount of like kind of broadly speaking shot creation on the floor, but I think that it diminishes in value pretty quickly after you get past more than like two dudes who can, you know, unless they're, like, absurdly elite. Um, on the other hand, you could never have enough shooting on the floor. Like, more, right. more shooting, always good. Um, like, and rim protection is sort of the, the flip side of, uh, of like, yes, it would, it, like, it's, it's good to have guys who can protect the rim, but, like, you don't need a second, like, drop center on the floor. Like, that, 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 doesn't, add a, that doesn't add a whole lot of additional value if you have, <laughs> if you have one already. No, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, I've always kind of looked at shooting, too, as like the, the Swiss Army knife of you can fit any skill set in if you surround it with enough shooting. And then it's just about maximizing and leveraging that skill in the way that it's like optimally, you know, or, or in terms of optimizing it for winning basketball games. You know, so you can have a Jimmy Butler, right, who isn't the most, you know, efficient, isn't like maybe the number one guy that you want in terms of shot creation. But if you have enough defense and shooting around him, like you can make Jimmy Butler, a winning, a, a, a Jimmy Butler led team into a winning team. Right. Um, and so, so you have, you know, kind of B plus shot creation and a minus defense and, and a plus, plus, plus like random basketball plays. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and shooting. And then you have a plus yeah. shooting around it. Right. Yeah. And so the no, thing but I'm, I, but I'm saying like, that's like, that's kind of his skill set. Like he's sort of C minus. Oh yeah. Shooting. Okay. C minus shooting, decent shot creator, really good defender, but then like, you know, him and sort of Lowry too are both just like, you know, the random loose ball slash just like weird basketball field play that you can't totally describe that somehow their teams end up with five extra possessions a game just because guy did a did a thing. Or, or just, or just the heady shit that they do yeah. mid-possession that turns right. a possession going down the toilet into a really highly efficient shot, you know, because yeah. of something smart in the way they slip a screen or screen somebody in a certain way or, you know, make a pass that's, you know, nobody else sees on the floor or whatever. Um, but I, I think roundabout, the thing that I was getting to talking about these teams was pulling it back to player development is we see the value now of being able to, to have eight, nine competent rotation players and what it means in terms of not having you be exposed in the, the high-pressure situations where you're playing a guy that clearly isn't going to add value in major playoff minutes, you know, because you can't eat 15 minutes a game in the playoffs for a guy that gives you suboptimal performance. You just can't do that anymore. He'll, he'll be exposed for his weaknesses or those minutes will add up over the course of the series. And unless you, you know, are on the good side of variance with your shot making, you know, you're going to be fucked. And so that's why it's always been interesting to me that, like, there isn't more value on taking the 12th guy on your bench and trying to create a situation where he becomes a viable eighth or ninth guy because we were seeing the value of when that becomes a dead spot, teams lose. 
And it's part of the reason why I think with Utah, with Joe Inglis being out and like everybody moving up a slot, I have questions about what are Utah is going to do in the playoffs, right? As you lose that rotation guy and then you have that domino effect going forward of who's going to step in to eat 20 minutes in game four of the first round series. All of a sudden, there's a lot of, a lot of Trent Forrest. Right. And, and of, that's the thing. A lot of it's Daniel like, House, a lot of Trent Forrest. And like, like Daniel House in particular is probably someone who, who can give you like good minutes doing certain things in a playoff series. But like there's, there's a line over which you cross what you're asking him to do. And it flips pretty quickly from useful to harmful. Right. And, and I think the thing I look at is like, you know, Utah is probably one of the better teams at giving guys time to develop, but you know, where, where is the emphasis on getting someone into their organization, you know, two or three years ago to build them to this moment where they have a more viable option than Trent Forrest, you know, where was the, the urgency to do that or build a player development model within that organization to find that guy that can do that. Um, or, or create the system that allows you to turn off uh, players of the contract structuring that allows you to keep a guy to develop him long enough so within why, your program <laughs> to have that guy, right? What, so why isn't everybody Toronto and Miami? Is sort of yeah, what basically. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. So, no, and, and then that's why it's hard. It's, it's like you're – because, you know, the, the, you know the, the commitment to, I guess, the term that I've heard used is to pour into these guys, most of whom won't amount to much. But to do to treat them all like you know like the, they they have a chance and you know and and to like you can you can you demand things of them because at the same time you're also like putting everything into them and then you know and this is I I sometimes criticize Miami for you know like falling too much in love with their own success stories but maybe that's a that's a necessary part of it. In, almost is like you like you have to otherwise you're not you, you don't you know you don't uh, you, you don't love them enough to, to actually get them good if you're not going to go too far with it yeah I, I agree 100 percent. I mean you'd rather see I mean again the perfect world is you understand when you need to cut bait and when they their market value is you know not something you can pay whatever it is but which but, way, which direction are you going to make that mistake on right and, and I think yeah I, I'm I, again bad radio. I'm on the same side as you. I think yeah. it's better to to give them the loyalty that they need to get to that point, and then you make the mistake on the back end versus what you see the vast majority of NBA teams do, which is just constantly shuffling the bottom end of their roster. And you know, some teams will just give a guy a couple of months, you know, to come in and show them what they can do. And it's like, what are you going to do, giving this guy a couple of months? You know, and then a lot of it goes into the next step of identifying the type of person that could take advantage of that. Cause it's not just about getting a skilled player in there and then refining the skill. You know, sometimes it's just about finding the right guy and giving him the time to figure shit out, you know? So um, that's, that's, I think that, that this kind of gets to, you know, across all of kind of adding players to your basketball team. This is the, the like, this is the, this is the heart of it really. Cause you know, anytime, you know, okay, there's the kind of the top, I don't know, 200 players in the league, kind of, okay, you sign them, you kind of know what you're going to get. You trade for them, kind of know what you're going to get. Everybody else, whether it's a draft pick coming in, whether you're taking a flyer into the bench, like growing into something more is like, that's how you win. But we don't know, it feels like we, we have, you know, we talk about tools and the physical tools, like he can run, he can jump, he can dribble, he can shoot, whatever. But the thing that you said early in the conversation that really started me thinking about this was you talked about like Devin Booker picking stuff up fast. How do we identify that? A, yeah. how do we identify that? B, can we improve that? No, that's a great question. I, I remember I talked to, to Henry Abbott about this too. And, you know, I mean, I love one of my favorite books is like Super Forecasting, which is, you know, kind of basically the idea behind what makes a good decision maker, essentially. Um, and I think that that is really the new frontier. And I, I used to joke with Henry Abbott uh, that I wanted to write a piece for him and just say, you know, what if we did an NBA draft where we didn't mention any physical skills and we talked about like processing speed and decision making, you know, all that kind of stuff where it was, you know, you take these things about, you know, how quickly a player can pick up a skill and utilize a skill and all that kind of stuff. And, and the guy that I always think of 
is, you know, he didn't end up making it to the league, but he um, is my guy, Tommy Walkup. And Tom plays in, in EuroLeague. He's with Olympiacos in Greece. And Tom was always the guy that I just, <laughs> he has no business making, you know, whatever he's making, probably $800,000 a year playing for Olympiacos, given what he was and where he come from, where he came from. You know, he had two Division One scholarships. He went to Stephen F. Austin. And Tom's thing was he just figured out how to do shit. He figured out how to be a winning basketball player, whether that was working to improve its skill, accepting a certain role, spending a know. lot of time in the weight room. If I, can, yeah. if I remember, if I remember what, what he looked like in college. Correctly. Yes. The funny thing um, is that's actually was a running joke is he always wanted to do meathead shit in the weight room and we had to do stuff to get him to actually move better. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, but that was one of the other things that Tom did well is he accepted something like that. And he, that I think that that type of thing of like I always used to say that you could tell when a player was successful when his vision of who he needed to be to make money aligned with the vision of what he like what somebody else needed him to be to make money right so like Pargo is the perfect example Pargo needed to be a guy that ran a team and was okay with playing next to a star and playing off the ball but in Pargo's head he was the guy the alpha male leader of the team ball in his hands at the end of the game. That kind of thing. And there was a huge gap, right? And well, for a... at the NBA level, there's a huge gap. Yes, I think in the NBA like, level, there's a huge gap. But in yeah. like, in like at the, you know, you go down, a, you know, three quarters of a step of basketball, and that's a perfect role for him. Exactly. No, I, I agree 100%, but more so in terms of like, if Pargo was going to max out where he was, you know, in terms of his career and playing, you know, obviously he made a lot of money. He's incredibly successful still as far as general life things <laughs> but but the point is it's like the the gap between what a player wanted to be and what he needed to be the bigger that gap the less bullish i was on his you know future going forward and i think that's something that teams have to look at is not what they're because we try to transpose a vision on players all the time like right we see this guy and we look at his skill set and we say he can be this but like we never really think well what does the player think that he can be you know, I can't tell you how many young guys that we've had come up and they want to play like Katie, or they want to play like Anthony Davis, or they want to do this and they want to do that. And it's like, dude, you're never going to make money doing that. Like, you can do that, but you're going to play in Bulgaria doing that. So, um, you know who's figured this out? Agents. I don't know. Agents have figured this out because the different, like, even in, you know, I, you know, I had a relatively short time in the league, but the difference even across that time in terms of, like, the kinds of answers you would get in interviews about who do you see your game like. Like, it went from everybody saying, like, Kobe and Tracy McGrady and Paul George to all of a sudden, like, all you've got guys coming and saying, yeah, I think, I, you know, Robert Covington is a guy who might get, like, you know, uh, I, I like the way Ricky Rubio plays or, or, like, those kind of these these sort of, like, mid-tier kind of connecting valuable role guys. Like, I think half, I think, you know, three-quarters of the time, that this is like agent coaching them to, to spit some bullshit that they thought teams wanted to hear. But the fact that they knew to coach them to say that is, is like illustrates that, that I think that at least some of the better agents in the pre-draft process have, have kind of figured that, that part out. Yeah. And, you know, and again, then there's, you go into a further element of like when you're doing your background research on a player, <laughs> what's bullshit and what's real, <laughs> um, you know, and that, and that adds another layer of trying to figure out who the right guy is. Right. Cause you know, you'll get, you'll call their old high school coach or their college strength coach and he'll say, Oh, this guy did this and this guy did that. And it's like, well, is that information actually accurate? Is it painting the right picture of this guy? Is he leaving some things out? Is he leaving a stubborn streak out? Is he, <laughs> does this, does this guy want to tell me good things so he can get a job? Is it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so it's an information war in that sense. It becomes that too. Um, but I mean, I do think that there is a, there, there is, that's the next marketing inefficiency is, you know, we see all these guys and, and, and some players who have had incredible success, you know, see Jim McCollum coming from Lehigh, Damian Lillard coming from Weber State, John Morant coming from Murray State. So like, you know, and then there's every end of the rotation guy that has the crazy story. I mean, you know, probably Chris Copeland is one of the crazier ones, right? And, you know, we see these guys that grind their way onto a roster and it's like, how the fuck did they do that? And there's an answer there somewhere, right? And some of it's luck, some of it's opportunity that just happens to meet that preparation kind of thing. 
um, you know, where they, you know, like Michael Lewis has that famous uh, commencement speech to Princeton about sitting next to the right person at the right time, you know, being born in the right, <laughs> right time for that thing to pay I, off. Know, no, I, th- I mean, I think that, like, I certainly, like, you know, that so much of, of you know, well, I, it's a book I recommend all the time, but so much of, like, what's happened, you know, for me professionally in the last couple of years have been, I was at a dinner and I met David Epstein and I didn't really know who he was. And he told me about this book range that he was writing. And I read this book and I was like, Oh wow. Yeah. That's, that's stuff I want to do. And it wasn't just like the specifics, but it was like, it's a book about like taking pieces from different disciplines and putting them together into something cool, interesting and new without necessarily being a, a like hardcore expert in any of the underlying things. Like that's kind of me. I should do that. And, you know, without that chance conversation, would, would, you know, would I have just been like head down, grind, 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 or would I have got, I don't know, but it certainly, that certainly helped. Um, and that was just, I was, you know, a friend of mine said, Hey, I got invited to this dinner. You want to come with? And, you know, happened to meet a guy and here, and, and, you know, four years later, here we are. So it's, you know, it's like you say, who, who I sat next to at a dinner literally changed my life. Yeah. You know, and there's certain, there's certain things that happen where players and, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with guys that whether they're into the bench NBA guys or European guys, you know, trying to move up or move to different spots is like some of the times I just had to straight up tell them like, yeah, you're doing great. You know, you're working on what you need to work on. You're prepared. You're a true professional but look, man, your career might just be decided by just a random break. Guy gets hurt at the right time. Somebody knows has a personal connection and pushes you at a time when a roster spot's open, and it works out. And and again, I, I you know I hate going back to Tom all the time, but you know Tom basically was I I was worried that after Tom's first season, he played for Windy City, and he had a bunch of bad bad breaks. Actually, I wrote about kind of a story for Henry Abbott at True Hoop. And, you know, I thought I was really worried after Tom's first season that he was going to be done as a basketball player. Like, I thought he's not going to go back to the G League. There weren't a lot of offers overseas materializing because he just had injury problems. And like Spencer did when he was down earlier in the year. And then they uh, brought back Will Bynum, who was like a Chicago high school legend. And he kind of usurped Tom's chances to play and get minutes. And Tom's was kind of was generally just an afterthought for that Windy City team. And basically it was his agent (laughs) – you know, played for a coach in Germany and like just pushed Tom onto him. And then Tom played for that team and was awesome. And then his career took off. You know, if he doesn't have that agent, if that agent doesn't play for that coach who doesn't have that job, you know, is Tom making nearly, you know, seven figures in basketball right now? And, you know, Tom obviously has clearly earned it with everything that he did, but there's also an element of luck. And there are some guys that don't get that as well. And so that's the other thing is that we got to look at, you know, it's hard to look at guys, especially from a player development standpoint, you know, did, did we do enough to get that guy there? Yes. But did he get the break? You know, and so ultimately he looks like he's unsuccessful, but maybe he had every tool that he needed to, and he just didn't catch, catch the opportunity. And so you have to factor that into kind of like your assessment and your evaluation of what players you can do what with, because we never really tend to, you know, look back on some of the guys that didn't make it. And just realize if like there was a flaw in who they were or their skills or their personality or whether or not it was just they kept finding bad situations, you know, versus the guys like Chris Copeland who clearly, you know, bounced around and found the right spots at the right time. Sure. Um, let me see. I had one more thing I wanted to, I've kept you for an hour already. There's one kind of one more thing I wanted to ask you about, but I think maybe, it, maybe I'll put it in my pocket and uh, sort of, uh, towards the the playoffs or playoffs of the draft maybe maybe have have you come back and talk about some stuff there's what like we never really got to some of the stuff that you, that you're doing now uh, in terms of, of of with with college coaches and navigating like transfers and stuff like that which is a whole other kind of kind of kind of world but so um can, can I have you come back and we can talk more about it? <laughs> I mean, if, I would love to come back. I don't know. If, I hope your audience wants me to come back. I feel like I ramble I, a lot here, um, but I, 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 there's, there's, you know, there's, there's one person that has the biggest vote in, in terms of this. It's <laughs> That's me, good. So, That's um, just don't put a poll on your Twitter feed whether Brett yeah, should come yeah, back. Yeah. I don't want to see the no vote be at like 70%. Yeah. Well, so. let's, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But anyway, I think uh, th- thanks a lot for coming on. This is you know uh, part of, again part of the reason why I've kind of uh, that this pod has been fun for me to do is basically um, this feels sort of like a conversation we've just had over the last couple of years, but now get to like you know record it and put it out there, and it's it's uh, it, it's a good time, and I feel like I learned a bunch. Yeah, well, I appreciate it too. I always learn when I talk to you, man. Um, man, buy Seth's book, people. Buy Seth's book. This dude, this <laughs> dude is the man. One of the smartest people I've I've been around. I'm always grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you, buddy. So thank you for having me on, and I would absolutely love to come back. Very cool. Well, th- uh, thank you for listening. If you're listening to this on on, on Monday or later uh, tomorrow, I've I've uh, another guest I've been trying to get on uh, for a long time. Um, to talk about Jimmy Butler um, and some other members of the Miami Heat, among other things. I got uh, Nikias Duncan coming on tomorrow. So uh, join me to, uh, Tuesday afternoon for that. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Take oh, uh, can I plug oh. one more thing? Oh, here, please, please. One, plug. one thing. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, Seth, plug will away. Also, Seth will also be reliving his poker days uh, coming on my podcast, Covered in Glory, Thursday for uh, Cousin Sal's Extra Points Network. So if you want to listen to some sports betting and listen to – Seth, make us all smarter in understanding lines and what lines mean oh God. as far as informing us about the world and the leagues and sports that we play, oh market God. values and all those wonderful things. Please come on the <laughs> Extra Points podcast and uh, listen to Seth again. Give us knowledge in just a different area of his life, just like range. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, everyone. Talk soon.